Imagine you picked up the most important book in the world, a book with words that can transform hearts. Included in this book are highlights and notes in the margin. This is the Notable Podcast, and these are the discussions of twin pastors who share their underlining and highlighting with you. This is Season 7, Life Reframed, a podcast on Ecclesiastes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Notable Podcast. We are back. One quick note before I say anything else. We are not going to be on Wednesday night next week. We are Tuesday night next week at 8 p.m. Eastern. So not Wednesday next week, Tuesday next week. Tell everyone why, though. (laughs) We're not moving to a new night. No, we're not. It's just for Thanksgiving. Yeah, so we're thinking that some of some of you may be traveling next week on Wednesday night, going into the holiday on, on Thanksgiving Day. So Tuesday night next week, eight o'clock, we're gonna kick kick off um, our next episode of Life Reframe with um, Ecclesiastes. Sorry to donate at notablepodcast.com. Subscribe, <laughs> subscribe everywhere. <laughs> yeah, share it with people you know and love. And thanks for being with us here tonight. We got uh, an exciting podcast tonight. Are you going to tell everybody what's on the on the docket on this episode? <laughs> <laughs> on this episode, what we're going to do? We're calling this episode "The Forest for the Trees," and. Our goal by the end of this podcast is to um, give you the tools to be able to um, get into the book of um, Ecclesiastes and 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 walk away with a coherent overall message. Yeah, and that's exactly it. That's exactly it. And I got two reasons. I got two reasons why this is a really, really important episode to to get into. The, the first one is this, we, I think it was in our first episode called Life Reframed, where we talked about how Ecclesiastes is like an, an octopus with, um, and then I, I took some flack for this one here at home. I was wondering how many arms the octopus right. has. <laughs> <laughs> but the whole, like trying to pull the legs in, right? And then you have one, we said that there was one that was always kind of escaping. And the book of Ecclesiastes can feel like that. And this is why it can be a hard book to read, actually. When I want you to picture like trying to take a message home as this big slippery ball. And and you want to carry it with you in your heart, but there's no handles for it. So like you try to grab it and it's greasy and it just every time you try to, you know, grip it tighter, it just pops away from you. And reading the book of Ecclesiastes can be like that. So the first reason why this episode is going to be really, really key is we, we're going to give you handles for reading this book. The second reason why this episode is going to be really, really key is because we're going to, we're going to come clean with you now. 
we, there's no way that we can possibly go through every single verse in this book. And I apologize if we, we misled you, but there's so many little exegetical and interpretive hermeneutical um, rabbit holes that we could go down in this book that we just can't. We just can't. So what we want to do is give you, the listener, the reader, handles for this book so that when you're reading it, you yourself can take away the gold that that is that is really, really in there. And then so through the, the rest of this podcast, what we're going to do is pick up some really big themes. So I just wanted to remind people where we're coming, where we've come from in this podcast, um, show you a little bit what we're going to do tonight, and then also kind of show you exactly where we're going to be going throughout the rest of this uh, season. So if, if you can go back to podcast number one, we did an introduction to the book. It was Life Reframed. And then we we went east of Eden. And in east of Eden, we, we really did this prologue. If, if you're looking at the screen there, um, and we talked about the meaning there. The next episode, we did an episode called Not Far Apart. And we covered all the way from Ecclesiastes 1 verse 12, uh, all the way uh, really up to 2 verse 23. And that was, that was the one where we cut off and the last word of the episode was, was Jesus. Then we had an episode on this Carpe Diem passage. And then we rode those Carpe Diem passages kind of like a surfer on a wave through the rest of the book. So we picked up that theme. The, the episode last week then, we picked up, oh, where's that word? Pleasure. We talked about this relationship that we have with God uh, and how, how it is that we come into a pleasing relationship with him. So we have covered, I think, really, really well. We've done five hours of teaching already on chapters one to two. And now what we're going to do tonight is give you handles. So here we are. We're going to go forward from chapter three and give you some handles to, to take the rest of this book in. So that, And then in further episodes after this, what we're going to do is kind of, kind of like we did with Carpe Diem, we're going to follow like a thread or like a surfer on a wave. Some of the thematic elements like injustice, money, revenues, investments, some of these topics that that keep coming up throughout the book. Did I say that well, Jonathan? Hope I yeah, did. I, the, the one thing that I would add at this point is get excited about this. This I remember my own experience with the book of Ecclesiastes is you, I read it and, and then there's parts of it where I, there was so much in there that I couldn't, it, you were talking about like a greased ball, but I was thinking about, a. um, a greased pig. Have you ever seen a greased pig? Yeah. <laughs> a county, We're from Minnesota. County like, fair. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and people wrestle those things at county fairs, at least they used to. At, at any rate, um, it, it is hard to get a hold of. I like that metaphor. And but I think by the end of tonight, you'll you'll be able to 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 see the big picture, the forest for the trees, and and it's really gonna comfort your heart. I know it is because it's com it comforts mine. You'll see it. Yeah. And that's really the big goal. So we, we want to, 
we, we want to show you the forest for the trees. We're going to see the problems with trying to put handles on Ecclesiastes, some of the difficulties with doing that. We're going to give you a proposal for like, how can we carry this book away in our hearts? And then we want to show you exactly why it's so saving to do that and so healing to do that. Uh, so we want to start by just showing you some of the difficulties of trying to uh, package up, if you will, or put handles on the book, outline it. Some people call it or talk about its structure. And I wanted to do that just by getting into some of these uh, verses here in Ecclesiastes chapter three. And I want to start by just kind of showing you on a, on a micro level. So like a smaller level, uh, some of the difficulties of how, what, how does this book flow? Like what, what's its message and how's it stay connected to itself? Um, and right away in chapter three, we run into a difficulty and this is just an advertisement. Anyone from Peace and Aiken who's on here tonight, anyone who, from Sure Foundation in, in Queens, New York, um, we are going we're gonna to close out the church here with a, a, a detailed um, and powerful preaching of Ecclesiastes 3 this Sunday. And so we don't, we're not going to... Um, Watch out, Peace. We're coming. Coming yeah, for you. Yeah, so it's, we're going to cover this in more here. depth then. But what, what suffice it to say for right now, that this poem, this poem is uh, very enigmatic. It's ambiguous. It's very difficult to interpret, especially if it had no context. So uh, what does that even mean? There's a time for everything, a season for everything. Um, come on Sunday, we'll, we'll do more of that. Um, and anyone on the podcast can feel free to listen in as well. Um, but for the purposes of this context, uh, podcast, I just wanted you to see like a major new theme is time. And he's going to talk about time like, like crazy. And then right here, it, what you want to do with Ecclesiastes is to read it sensitively is to understand that what he says next interprets, it's going to interpret that poem right there. And the reason why we can get momentum on that is because look at this. He's still talking about time. He's still talking about time. Now, he, this is where things get interesting. As a chapter goes on, then he, it seems like, it seems like, here we go. He changes, he changes themes. So all of a sudden he was talking about the tyranny of time. And now what, what, what just happened? <laughs> Why are we talking about injustice? But here's the thing. Um, it, we haven't quite all the way left behind the theme of time. So it's still there. Now, the NIV, the NIV thinks that this is the end of a section. But if you kind of keep reading, we're still talking about injustice. So what, what's going on here? What's going on here? So one of the things that we have to understand about the teacher is that the way that he lays out his teaching is kind of like a color wheel. That's the best way that I can put it. So if at the beginning of chapter three, we're, we're doing, we're talking about the tyranny of time and how it frustrates us. It just, he turns the wheel just a little bit, this color wheel, 
And now all of a sudden, we're, we haven't quite all the way left behind the theme of time, but we're moving into a new color. So it might be like brownish or maroonish or something like that. And the, the wheel keeps turning. We're all, at some point, we have left time completely behind. So there's no more red in there. And now we've, we've moved into injustice. And, and that's kind of how a lot of the book of, of Ecclesiastes works. There's no clear endings and there's no clear beginnings. The colors kind of just blur together. Is, it, are, is this making sense what I'm saying? I hope it is. Do you want to jump in on that at all, Jonathan? He's blending ideas through the section, but he is keeping a theme prevalent. It, exactly, exactly. And one of the, so so that's one of the problems of Ecclesiastes. A lot of times there's no clear thematic shift. There's there's no indicator that, oh, we're talking about a new thing. And and we're we have to struggle and piece together um, when he's finally totally moved on to uh, a new point. The same problem happens on a macro level. So if we looked at the the micro level, on the macro level, is the same problem occurs. So it, it's almost as if in, so as a preacher, as I was going through this book, one of my main concerns, a big concern of mine, I think Jonathan, you had it too, is how can I not make sure to repeat myself? <laughs> it's like a preacher's nightmare that uh, people are going to be like, didn't you just say that last week? You know, <laughs> and it well, gets even up... more difficult the more years yeah. you stay at a church. <laughs> what were you going to say? No, we'll see. Like that's actually going to lend itself to how we're going to bring coherence to the book, but that's absolutely right. He's, he does repeat ideas thematically and rise to the same climaxes we've already seen that with carpe diem for example quite, quite a bit and carpe diem is not the only theme that that will come forward there's going to be other themes as well so one of, it's not like it's not like a chapter book where the or with aristotelian logic where we we okay i finished that argument i'm not going to return to it uh I'm going to move on to a new thing. It's it, it's like this color wheel, but he feels free to come back to it. And so that's that's one of the these are some of the challenges with with the book of Ecclesiastes. And frankly, like if you if you get into some of the scholarship on this book, like how how is this book laid out? Um, there is no unanimity uh, among among the scholars. There's a lot of proposals. Some, some people see that this is, it's a logical division to the book. So you have, a lot of people see four parts to the book of Ecclesiastes, where you see the problem, the theological question that he's asking. And then what he comes back with in, is the ethical response. So the, what does it mean to live with this truth in your heart? And then he does it again. He's got another question with the ethical response. But you, you know, you look at that and it's not quite that clean. Um, other, other scholars um, will, will look at this book, especially like the proverbial section. So let me just, I'm going to scroll ahead to some of the proverbial se sections. So chapter four, 
chapter four has got some proverbs here. So a lot of, there will be scholars that will say what what the, the book is kind of like a spiral where there's proverbial sayings and then reflections, reflections on the proverbial sayings. So some people will say that. Um, and then other people say there's no outline here at all. And Fox is one of those commentators. And he said this, there's less effect on interpretation because of the outline he's saying than a ghost, than a ghost in the attic. So <laughs> I like that. So nobody's going to get scared by a ghost in the attic. Like the ghost actually has to leave the attic. And his point is like, why are we even trying to outline this thing? And frankly, frankly, you know, this is maybe just a little bit of a side note. But um, outlines really come out of the Enlightenment period. And it, it's, it, it's nice for us as Westerners, people who have been trained in humanism, um, in, in Enlightenment thinking, to think that we can slap an outline on it, put it in a, a box and bow it up. And then we're like, oh, now we can really, really get Ecclesiastes. But Ecclesiastes isn't ever going to be that simple and instead instead what we need to do um with ecclesiastes is think about it organically we need to think about it organically so uh, in literarily so not it's not a scientific thing it's not a logical thing it's an organic thing like a tree or like a river with eddies that just explodes so think about a tree that just there's explosion of the trunk that goes out and then spreads out. It, this is how we need to think about the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, but that does cause a problem for us. Like, how do we put handles on it then, Jonathan? It's, it causes, I want to say two things about that. Not one, just respond to what you were saying, is we Westerners think that we have grasped something when we've put it in our heads. And this is, this is a major bias that we have. This book, it's not a problem that this book doesn't have an outline that's really obvious to, to us. It's a blessing. Because what we have to do is, is not just know things, truth propositions from the book, but we actually have to be deeply affected by those truths. We have to be one to them, condemned by them, live in them. And that's what makes Ecclesiastes so powerful and, and effective. And that kind of leads me into this next part. There, there is thought, there is order to this book. And the proof is the teacher tells you that. <laughs> the, the preacher, Kohelet, tells you that. So what we were going to do just for a second is, is read the book backwards. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read to you Ecclesiastes chapter 12. This is verses 9 and 10. So at the I end got of the it book, up on the screen too for you, sweet. just so you know. Yeah. He says, not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. So let, let's just take that apart for a second and, and realize that he, there's, there's a plan and there's a purpose to this book, just like there is to creation itself. 
So the first thing I want you to notice is, is something about the teacher. The teacher is not only wise, but he also is able to impart that wisdom. Now, <laughs> this maybe doesn't sound significant, but it's actually pretty significant. I, I thought of a few examples of why this is significant. You can have a good preacher who has no idea how, how to teach preaching or tell anybody else how to do it. You can have an amazing writer who has no idea how to communicate, how to write well. You can have a person who's, who's good at living life under God and have no idea how to teach um, that or, or share the truths that are already embedded in their heart with, with somebody else. So the gift here and what the teacher is saying is that he not only is a wise person, but he has the ability now to communicate that said wisdom. And this, this is, of course, the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, here's the next thing he says. One, one note about this. This is a very interesting way of talking about himself. This is like that Seinfeld episode where the guy, the third person, re yeah. he, re he referred to himself in the thir third person. And Solomon's been pretty used to actually using the, the first person. I don't know if it's because of humility or something else, but all of a sudden he's talking about himself in the third person. He was saying that guy who just wrote that book, he's pretty wise. Anyway, it's a pretty interesting thing to consider. It's a little yeah. bit of a sidelight, but it is, I think, important to note. It is. He's giving himself in a self-evaluation, but we can't tell it. And maybe he's just getting out of the way of himself there. The next thing that he says here is he's, he, he makes this claim that he was very thoughtful about ordering his work. So he says he pondered this, he, he searched it out, he did arrange it, he arranged his, um, his mashal. Now, I do want to be clear about this, the, the Hebrew lexicons are going to tell us that this is more than just the ordering of the Proverbs in the book, but that the, this mashal refers to the entire work that is Ecclesiastes. So the preacher is, is understanding that this is, this is really meant to be consumed as one organic, um, moving, spiritual entity. And what he did is he thought hard, and of course the Spirit's leading him to put this together. So he's, so listen to that claim. He's saying, I ordered this thing. There's a strategy here. This is like, oh, I think this is a nice thought. And, and or this just came to mind. He's actually thinking about us and how we can be led more deeply into the teaching. Well, and that, that, that makes sense that he would do that. I, that's what God does. Like when he, when he took creation, he, he created everything and it was formless and empty. And then he put it in order. Like, and Paul talks about how we want to have orderly worship. It would make no sense at all. If we had a book in scripture that wasn't set in order by the, by the inspiration of the Holy spirit. And here the teacher saying that's exactly what he did. So the challenge in front of us is, well, what is the order? Like, what is the flow, the organic way that it comes to us? But sorry to interrupt, to butt in on that. So exactly, Solomon's being led by the spirit. 
who breathes into the world. Now, the next thing that I want you to notice is that he chooses words and he orders all this stuff and he, and he chooses it. And he uses two descriptors for this. I, I'm not real happy with the NIV here um, on this translation. So these are truthful words. The other thing is they're, they're not just right, they're pleasurable. <laughs> he's, he's, what he's saying is that these words are aesthetically pleasing. They're beautiful. They're right. They're, they, they engage you. They, they draw you in. So in other words, the, the, the preacher here, the teacher, Colette, he's, he's not only giving you truth, but he's giving us truth in such a way that we can, that we can sort of imbibe it, that we can, that we can live in it, that we can be grasped almost by it. Um, and, and so this is, this is very, very important. So God's word needs a hearing. Um, and what, what God does through his word and by his spirit is he gives us ways, um, forms and, and genres and beautiful language that draws us in so that we meditate on it. And that's that's exactly what he does throughout the book. And I know in, in just a second we're gonna we're gonna throw people um, those handles. I won't call it an outline. I I don't really like that word for it. But to be able to have those handles to see that order that he has in his arguments and how it really is just this very saving word that he gives to us. There's a there's a Emily Dickinson poem that helps us think about a little bit how the Kohelet does this. She she once wrote, "Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies too bright for our infirm delight. The truth's superb surprise, as lightning to the children eased with explanation kind. The truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind." tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Now, Emily Dickinson, she's emphasizing the fact that indirect communication is, is a powerful form of rhetoric that allows us to contemplate things that we wouldn't otherwise contemplate. I might put it like this, that truth needs to be coupled with love. And in a setting of communication, we all know that we can't hear anything unless we feel safe. And so, what Solomon does is he puts all of that together into this beautiful work, a masterpiece. It's not a mess. It's a masterpiece for us to consider. That's it. That's it. And so take us, take us into it, Jonathan. Like what is the, what's the beauty that it's, this is not a formless and empty book. This is, this is a beautiful, it's pleasant. It's right. And it's ordered show that to us or at least so, make an argument for us let me leah let, let me let me ground this just a little bit this this there's a lot of good scholarship that that would agree with the flow that we're going to propose and even if people don't agree with it that's okay i think people will have to agree at the very least that it is useful now this is a the flow that 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 we think is useful was actually proposed in the princeton review back in 1857, um, and there's commentators from Weihinger, um, Kyle, and then Kaiser, um, who have done some work um, in this direction too. So 
this is just this isn't just um, throwing names out there. It's just to say that um, we're not out on a limb. This is not this is not just pulling stuff out of a hat. This isn't just the Borman brothers. This there's a lot of good work that has been done here, <laughs> and a lot of credible people who have thought hard about about this word from God. And it and it sets up like this. I mean, the, the most obvious division is the one that we've been um, touting here. Um, you got four major divisions. The first one is is the one that we've gone over, and that's that's chapter one. And then it, it goes through two twenty six. We're asking there, what is the meaning of life? What is true satisfaction? What is gain? And there we. So I'm find... gonna go slow slow for me because I'm gonna try to show this to people. I got the text of Ecclesiastes up and I want to show this to people like where the, the new, so this is part one. That's what we covered in episodes one to five. And yeah, so there we're saying that, you know, it, it, the gain isn't in gratification itself. It, it is, it is being rooted in a proper relationship with God. And, and, and by, so we said that, yeah. Sorry to interrupt you again. But this is something that's helpful to mark in your Bibles. Like, if this is a notable podcast, like, this is good. Like, this is going to help you. It's going to help you read it. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to so help like, you read it. Use a pencil if you don't, if the, the text is sacred to you. And I know it is. It'll help is you see book. where the climaxes yeah. are. So, your exactly. first, you know, um, penultimate climax in the book is, is 226, then. And then that brings us to our, our second um, flow or our second um, argument that, that Solomon is going to make. And that it starts in, in chapter three, verse one, and then it's going to run through 520. Now, um, the argument that, that Solomon makes here, and y'all need to stop in for church on Sunday at one of our two places. But the argument, this is incredible, uh, but the argument that God, that, that Solomon makes um, is that God has a beautiful, sovereign plan for us. That's what we're going to say. Um, God has set these times and these seasons. God is, he has this beautiful, sovereign plan. And this is the force of the poetry there, that we can't see the plan. We just experience the plan and we must trust the plan. So we're called to faith in the plan. But now, so this is his big thesis, right? God, God has a big, beautiful saving plan. And now he's going to defend it. This is what he's going to do in the rest of the chapter. Starting in, in 3 verse 16, he's going to start defending the plan. So God has a big, beautiful plan. And Solomon's going to say, but. <laughs> and he's got these, he's got these little bits of, of rhetoric that show you that he's um, struggling with this plan. So in 316, he says, and I saw injustice right in the place where there should have been justice. Um, in 318, um, he, he's going to say, and I said to myself, it's so bad that humans are like animals. And we're going to talk about that. Um, then in 41, he's, he looks again and he says, oh man, where's the big, beautiful plan? I don't see this. I don't see God saving sovereign, beautiful plan. I see I see people being oppressed. So he's wrestling with these things. I don't see God's big, beautiful plan in 4.4. He sees envy. This is what's dry. Where's the big, beautiful plan? I just see a whole bunch of people who are envious of each other's stuff, and that's why they work so hard. 
Um, same four seven. I saw loneliness. Um, I saw the problem of foolish leadership. I and and uh, people who aren't living for their for their populace. So again and again and again, um, we see all of these um, different problems passing up. And then in in chapter five, then you start to see um, Solomon proposing, this is what we should do about this. There, there's, there's some mystery here. And that brings us to five verse one, where all of a sudden he says, look, look humans, <laughs> when you come into the house of God, zip it. <laughs> it's not quite what he says, but he's, you're going to want to do more listening than speaking. You don't want to come in there and bribe God. God has a big, beautiful, sovereign plan. And we, we want to um, fear God when we come in, into his temple. And then he, he closes that wrestling with the idea of, of wealth and money. And Psalm is, again, he's saying, look, this stuff doesn't have a, a huge impact on God's good, sovereign, saving plan. And then he, he ends up bringing it all the way up to a carpe diem and saying, look, when you realize God has this big, beautiful, sovereign plan, and I we've we've gone through these various rebuttals. This is, this is what I want you to do. Enjoy life. Let God have it. So that's the second part. Beautiful. Yeah. So that's, we've gone through two parts now, five episodes we spent on part one, but I think that was really, really necessary to do. We just burned through like in five minutes, probably part two. And I just wanted to notice like how, how integral the Carpe Diem passages are to the whole argument of the book. Here part two culminates, it really culminates with the Carpe Diem. So this is, um, what a beautiful book. This is a beautiful, hopeful, hopeful book. You want to take us into part three? Don't, by the way, this is just an aside. Don't despair. <laughs> this isn't a great injustice. We are going to come back to injustice. <laughs> we are. We're, we're, and we'll talk come... about wealth and possessions and the problem yeah. of death and judgment. We're These not, are coming in, in further episodes. It's yeah. coming. It's coming. So then that brings us to our next section. If you're taking notes in your Bible, which is definitely worth doing, the next big se section starts at, at 6 verse 1, and it goes through 7 verse 15. And I'll tell you, when, when I understood this section, of Ecclesiastes, this really comforted me. So here's the deal. So we got two big theses, right? Um, right relationship with God enables the enjoyment of his gifts, and this is gain in life. That's the first thesis. The second thesis is that, is that God is a sovereign God. He's working out everything according to a, a beautiful sovereign plan. Then what Solomon is doing is wrestling with this some more. Um, he, we all have these questions in life. Um, what happens when we don't experience prosperity then? It, it, Solomon, you say there's this big, beautiful saving plan, but I, I, I'm not seeing it. And what Solomon does in, in this section is he says, it is more just and it is more right than you know. So the very, the, there's two sides of this. The first thing he says is what happens to you on the outside is more right 
then you know. So he makes an argument. Let, let's say let's say you're you're poor or something like that, and you're saying, "How's this part of God's great, big, beautiful plan?" Solomon comes along in verses six one through twelve, and he says, "Wait a minute. Prosperity like that is not always good." <laughs> and we're going to talk about that. That's his argument, though. We got a then whole he, episode on that. Yeah, yeah, it's coming. So you don't have as much money as you think you should, and other people do. And God, how is this just? How is this right? Um, this wicked person is, and Solomon says, look, prosperity is not what you think it is. The next thing that Solomon says is that God, this is so huge. God isolates the enjoyment of the gift from the gift itself. So track with, track with that. Just because you have something does not mean that God allows you to enjoy it. And so Solomon makes this, this is just a key. God is more fair than you know. So God, God might give somebody a bazillion dollars and they are completely miserable. <laughs> so you look, you look at it from the outside and he says, this isn't fair, Lord. This isn't fair at all. And, and Solomon says, oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> don't be so sure that you're making the right judgments right yeah. right so Simon, you see i was leading us here here to trust then in in 7 16 to 19 um what happens to you from the inside out is more right than than you know so let negative thing let's say negative things happen to you it's not just you lack positive things or like wealth and prosperity but that you actually suffer you actually suffer. And what, what Solomon starts to argue, um, starting in, at the beginning of chapter seven, is that suffering actually might be a blessing. <laughs> it actually might be a blessing. So on the first part, he's saying, you know, oh, this is so unjust. We don't have as much prosperity as other people. And Solomon says, don't, don't be so sure. And then you, you suffer and you say, oh, this isn't fair either. And Solomon says, don't be so sure. This, this suffering might be good for you. And look, let me just take you through some of these Proverbs. He's got a whole bunch of Proverbs that, that really kind of speak into this. I won't do them all, but I will do some of them. So he says in 7 verse 1, he says, it, having a good reputation is better than having a nice funeral. That's, you know, that's a paraphrase of its interpretation of it. Good reputation is better than a nice funeral because your name can live on um, and, and be something. You can be a, a person to emulate and imitate after death. The next thing he says, what happens at a funeral in the house of sadness is much more profound. This is seven verse two than, that, than, than if life was just merry all the time. And all, But all of you can think of examples of this. I, I, I remember um, it was just recently my poor little puppy just busted her leg real bad i mean it was just real bad and there we are sitting in this this animal hospital and I'm, I'm sitting there with my wife and um my wife's aunt and we just had the most profound conversation there we are um in a place of of sadness and and grief and this is where life is happening it, it, so there's tremendous amount of wisdom when you're not full of joviality and and just enjoying life all the time. Um, you're actually, this is, this is seven, three, and four. You're opened up to wisdom. You're not 
when you're not drinking your life away, like I said, you're just always sort of sloshed in joviality, whether that's real um, dealing with real alcohol or uh, or not. Um, seven seven, um, money does horrible things. Uh, it, it can take a, a wise person and turn them into a fool. So all of this, I hope people are seeing it. All of this is showing that suffering isn't what you think it is necessarily. It can actually be a gift that God is is placing in, into your life. So he, what he's kind of doing is he's pu- pushing back on common misconceptions that that rich people are happier than poor people and that it's better not to mourn. Like ev- everything that we kind of believe on life, he's, he's like, are you really sure about that kind of be- belief that you have about mourning or about money or whatever it might be? Saying you shouldn't be, you, you shouldn't be. Right. And the rest of the chapter, 7, um, 15, and then going down, um, shows that God really is just. And we had a whole podcast, not to be self-promotional, on the doctrine of justification, the gospel according to Solomon. And you just got to go, <laughs> you just got to go listen to that to see how just is and in your heart will thrill to God. I know mine certainly did. I did want to make one aside, um, Timothy, on that. Um, don't Please don't be distracted by what um, many people today are going to perceive as possibly misogynistic comment from Solomon as you read the back half of that chapter. This is one of those verses that a lot of people have trouble with. Solomon here talks about among a thousand women, um, he couldn't he couldn't find even one. Um, what's the language there, Timothy? Um, who was um, upright among them all? And so he. Some people take this to be a misogynistic comment. It's really not um, understood in the way that that Solomon has it. I'll, I'll just make a quick argument for that. One is. Um, and a lot of commentators do this with a wink. I'm not going to do it with a wink. Um, Solomon was no misogynist. <laughs> he, um, he, and on the front end of the book, of course, he, we, he, 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 he gets himself in trouble because he's, he's got a harem and this is a problem. But actually, and this is why I'm doing it not with a wink, is that he really does um, support monogamy in, in the book. And he really, in the rest of his work, Song of Songs is another example of this. Um, he has a high regard for women. But here he is commenting on his own life. Um, he does have um, this many women and he pursues unbelievers, Timothy. He pursues unbelievers. So one of the, um, and in the, in amongst unbelievers, this is true. Um, one of the one of the scholars um, that you can read on this is, is Dr. John Brug. Um, what he says is that Solomon went looking for, for love in all the wrong places, Egypt, Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, um, places like that. And if he would have looked for a woman among the people of God, he wouldn't have been led astray into idolatry um, in his life, and, and he certainly would have found an upright woman. Not to undo the point of justification by faith alone, by the way. (laughs) 
it's, it's just <laughs> not a misogynistic comment. <laughs> right. And it can be easily uh, thought of that way if you don't have that background on, on Solomon's life. Like if, if a man just kind of just comes out with that without having Solomon's really um, very wicked experience. And look, would an upright woman become the 990th wife of Solomon? It, 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 sh it shouldn't surprise us that among the thousand women that he had in his life that that they were not upright no the upright women i know so many upright women it's not even funny and they wouldn't yeah. touch solomon with the 10-foot pole <laughs> so and any upright man would have said run <laughs> yeah I know. at so, least at that point in his life so yeah. here here we are i want to get back into this Suffering isn't what you think it is, which, by the way, should think make us think of all kinds of New Testament passages. <laughs> Our Father in heaven disciplines those he love, loves. And prosperity isn't what you think it is either. People can have a lot of money. They might not enjoy it. Um, or, or something like that. And then you have the end of the section, which is just a 8, 2 to 15, you have Solomon saying a lot of what undoes um, unrighteousness and injustice is actually good civil government. And we all know that too. So that's the third, third big part. When we trust it, Solomon says, when we trust this, then we can just live our lives. We can entrust the government peace to God. And that's the third big section. All right. We got one last one last section. Yeah. One last, Where does one it begin? Section. 816? Yep, 816. And then it, and then really it, it goes to the end of the book, depending on how you want to right. break it up. We'll just say to the end of the book to make it easy. Um, part four. And what I like to say about this section is that really now we've wrapped up a lot of the rebuttals. And what Solomon is doing is he's consolidating every that everything that he said. It's almost like the forward and faith section of Ecclesiastes. Um, in 8.16 to 9.9, and by the way, we're going to cover large sections of this as well. What he's saying is, um, there is this doesn't solve all the mystery. There's still enigma. We still don't, we, we still don't get it, and we're going to cover that. There's, but there's still enigma. There's still mystery. We're still, we, have, we haven't unlocked all of this. But we can trust, and he does move us into joy. And that's what we move into the big carpe diem passage from forward in faith. You know, we're, we're, we're going to trust God's plan. And then what Solomon does is he uh, moves into um, a big section on wisdom, and he compares and contrasts um, how, different things and moves us in, more into a sanctified life. He next moves into some encouragements to investments and to leadership. And we're going to look at those passages as well. So basically saying forward in faith, cast your bread on the waters, do this thing, live this life that God has given you. Uh, and then he has his big closing section, which is 11.7 through uh, really 12.7. 
um, and we're going to handle the conclusion to the book separately. Um, and this is where Sam is, is really just making the argument that coming death should spur us to live now. So the whole section is saying, live this life, be done with the enigma, trust in the enigma, live in joy, invest, work hard, don't let the enigma stop you from living. And Salman pushes you along, he pushes you along and pushes you along until you say, okay, I'm going to do it. <laughs> and, and, and that's like part four is, is just a huge, um, the whole section is so climactic. And a lot of people think Ecclesiastes is so negative. And I hope that even this really brief overview of the book shows you that it's not. But look at how positive he gets at the end. He's like, um, invest, uh, you know, plant your crops, um, sow your seed. He, he's like, live, uh, banish anxiety from your heart, cast off troubles for youth and vigor are meaningless. So he's like, really live, remember your creator because you are going to die. And which is actually a really positive thing. Um, we'll, we'll go into that more. And then he says that actually everything matters. So like he, he's got so much vanity in the book. But really then he says at the very end of the book, we'll go into this in more detail later. He's going to bring everything into judgment uh, before God and so like, this is a really, he pushes to a real high note at in the last couple chapters of the book. And this, this is a fantastic book. It's just fantastic. Should we do a little bit of a reprise one more time? Give people those handles. So they, if they give that ball a squeeze, it's not going to, or don't the, let the, the pig, pig get away at <laughs> the county fair. We just part do one. this again. Yeah, like, I got it. I'm bringing up part one on the screen there. Part one, we get oriented to God. God brings our hearts back into Eden, and we are back in a relationship with him. That's part one. Part two, we begin to trust his beautiful saving plan. He addresses the most painful issues. He's leading us to trust the governing of that to him. And this allows us to live our lives without fretting. This is, and this is a big conclusion there. He says, they seldom reflect on the days of their lives because we're entrusting those painful issues to God. That's part two. Part three, we deepen even further in faith. So we're considering, and we, we there consider different facets of God's providence and how that it's much better and, and more righteous than we at first suspect when it comes to prosperity and adversity when it comes to what we call the good things and to what we call the bad things. We do let God have those things, and we, and we trust that, and this is how joy then us, accompanies us all the days of our lives, and then that leads us to, to part four, where we really move into the lives that we have. We grab a hold of them by faith, and it's a life empowered by faith in God and his sovereign plan in our lives. Ooh. There it is. There it is. I in thank Laid you, it down. That, Jonathan. That was awesome. That was awesome. <laughs> thank you for that. I I was I actually learned a lot just listening to you and just underlining things and reading this book. And maybe one of the once you kind of listen to this episode, one of the best things, best favors you could maybe do to yourself 
is just take 20 minutes because I maybe 25 minutes. It's funny how short you think these books are so long. They're not. It, yeah. You could read this book in, in the time it would take you to watch an episode of Seinfeld, right? And you you would do yourself a favor. These are not long up, chapters. Yeah. Yeah. No, open up long. the book and just notice some of these things that we've been talking about, the gospel in there, the carpe diems, and really these fantastic, he makes some fantastic spirit-given um comments throughout the book I, and i really can't wait to get into some of these further episodes but um let's just get into like what does this give our hearts you know like how let's bring this home and and then uh kind of we'll let people go and we'll look forward to next week then but we've seen the problems uh, of trying to nail this book down into a structure now we we've we've given handles for it how does this comfort us? Well, I got some stuff. I know you do. Go. <laughs> I, so I was, I was, I was like, I put the T, the, the the ball on the T, and I'm just waiting for you to. So this this book should give you serenity and trust. It 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 should place you under God in a place where you realize God has given you your life back in your hand and you're living in um, the kingdom has now come. Um, I know it's now and not yet. Jesus is going to come back and he's going to make it perfect. But still, you do have a life right now that comes to you by grace and because he loves you. And you can just go live that life. Do the good that you can do and, and enjoy it along the way. And so let me frame this even a little bit further um, or another way. What this is, is it's a major, the book is a major reorientation for us on issues like suffering, injustice, inequality. And what we do is all that stuff. And, and we do what we can. We enjoy what we can do. And we receive what God gives us but we don't fret about it anymore. We let it go. God is God. God has a big, beautiful plan. That's what Solomon's arguing. And we, we can't control it. God is, and it's good. Let him have it. Um, I, I think of a comment that um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer made. Um, he said, you know, when theologizing happened, you know, this is theologizing. We're always thinking all these God questions, debating, skeptics, cynics, questions, all this stuff. You know when that happened? When the snake came. That's when it happened. <laughs> and part of what Solomon is doing is he's outing all these questions, all the skepticism, all the cynicism, all the, oh, you know, is God being right? Is, he, is this fair? Is this good? And, and Solomon, he's outing all the questions. He says, yes, it is. Don't you see it? God is doing it. It really is right. And when we, when we get there, then what ends up happening, we stop asking questions. We can settle in our hearts. That's what I mean by surrendering. We can settle in our hearts to these things. And we can just trust God and love people. Amen. I, I'm going to add my, I'm going to add my own reflection, like to the big broad strokes of the book. 
we talked about how we want to see the forest instead of the trees. And I just wanted to characterize for a second Solomon as a teacher of wisdom for salvation, which we talked about last time. And the only teacher in my mind that can rival and really far surpasses Solomon in terms of coming to us with with, um, teachings that we have to consider fully and that are hard to understand is Jesus. Like he, he would, he would come to people with these parables and, and the disciples would be sitting there like scratching his heads and like, can you explain that to us? And the, some of the proverbial statements of Jesus, like you can sit there and unpack those things for hours. The first will be last and the last shall be first. Whoever hates his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will gain it for all eternity. Does that sound anything like Solomon? I mean, to me, like, um, he, he is David's greater son. He's Solomon's greater son. And the wisdom that he came with, his saving acts, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, like, this is, it all leads up to that. It's all pointing to Jesus. We talked about that quite a bit last time. But like to kind of pull back and look at the book and Solomon characterizes a teacher, only Jesus surpasses him in terms of wisdom and prop like Michelle's and proverbial wisdom. The differences with Jesus is that he not only gave us beautiful sayings and truthful sayings at the same time, which is exactly what Solomon does here. But our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, lived it from beginning to end. He wasn't just right. (laughs) He wasn't just right. He was also beautiful. Yeah. Should we leave it there? I'm not seeing any questions tonight. That's the forest for the trees. Yeah, that's the forest for the trees. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Remember that... Not Wednesday night next week due to Thanksgiving. We're gonna, we'll leave that as a travel night. Tuesday night, 8 p.m. And we are going to take injustice. Buckle up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good night, John. Thanks for listening to The Notable Podcast. You can check out our other seasons on our website or wherever you get your podcasts. If you are enjoying this ministry and are so moved to support it, please visit us at www.thenotablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.